If they rolled me down a hill like that, I would be in traction for a week. <laughs> At one point, the whole falling down thing, they did that in the middle of the hallway of the conference. And I don't know if you noticed, but one of the girls who wasn't in our youth group, she was from some other youth group, you know, looked and saw all these kids falling and she just got down on the ground. She didn't know, <laughs> you know if someone was shooting at them or what was going on. So they had a great time. I get so excited every time I see something like this because I'm reminded of just how good God has been to us as we've been starting this new church together. We have such quality leadership in every area of ministry and Amanda, our youth director and Alex and Hannah, they're no exception to that. They are doing a, a tremendous job with our young people and the reason that these leaders are so effective in what they're doing is not only because they really love God, but also because they really love our kids. In fact, they love them without condition. The truth is, some of our youth group members don't attend church here on Sundays, and their families don't attend church here, but they come back week after week to our youth services because they're consistently and unconditionally loved by our leaders and the other kids, regardless of where they come from what they look like, even how they, they act. And believe me, I know. I've seen how they act. No, I'm kidding. They're great kids, all of them, but the truth is our leaders are they're really loving these kids no matter what. And do you understand that that is exactly what made the first century church so potent, so viral, you know, so contagious. Those who stood against the early church couldn't control it. Even though they tried, the enemy couldn't kill it, even though he gave it his best shot. Even dead religion couldn't suppress what God was doing in his people because love, unconditional love, when it takes root in the church is very hard to stop. Okay, That's why this church has been growing the way that it has. I'm convinced because we have so many people, so many of you committed to loving others, no matter who walks through those doors at any given day. And that's what we're talking about today as we continue our sermon series entitled Kingdom Come, as we journey with Jesus and his disciples toward Jerusalem and through the events leading up to and including his death and resurrection. And today... We're going to hone in on Christ's love for his people, his, his love unconditional. And our main text for today will pick up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. But just before we go there, let's look at some backstory so that we can not only gain a better perspective on this journey to Jerusalem by Jesus and his followers at kind of a high level, but also to first examine the disciples' love for one another. And those around them at, at any given time in our scriptural history, which was very much conditional, at least at the beginning, uh, which is in stark contrast to Christ's love for others, okay? And we'll, we'll take a look at this because it's easier to understand unconditional love once we have a firm grasp on the alternative, right? So let's briefly just jump back to uh, the beginning of the journey in Luke chapter 9. Uh, starting on verse 51, where we see Jesus make his seminal decision to, to begin the long walk to Jerusalem. This was a, a decisive moment, a turning point in the ministry of Jesus as his final days here on earth were now drawing to a close. And yet, even though he knew why he was going to Jerusalem and exactly what was going to happen to him once he arrived. Remember, he had already uh, foretold of his death at this point. He knew what was going to happen. He still took the time all along the way there to stop and minister to and, and to love and to heal and, and to teach and to lead all those that he encountered 
who would listen. In fact, under normal conditions, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria on foot would have taken about three days. But Jesus spent much longer than that. Not because he wanted to avoid his destiny, but because he was unwilling to simply pass by those who needed him. See, Jesus had an appointment, right, with the cross. A cataclysmic moment that would profoundly change the world forever. And yet he still took the time to pause all along the way on this road to his destiny whenever the Spirit led him. It's really the, uh, the perfect picture of a truly Spirit-led life. We talked a couple weeks ago about allowing the Spirit of God within us to divert our plans from time to time and how important it is that we're always paying attention to that voice, you know, to His voice within us. Because sometimes our plans don't always line up exactly with His plans. And it is those moments when we're most attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit within us that often become the defining moments of our lives. Are you with me? Those moments when we're most attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit within us, those often become the defining moments in our lives. And this is just what we see in the life of Christ. That crystal clarity that even when he's on a mission, an assignment, a very focused path along the way, we see him take pause and give attention to those all around him, which are some of the most significant and instructive human encounters recorded in all of scripture. And I'm very thankful for Luke, the beloved physician, as Paul refers to him in his gospel account, because it is he, unlike the other gospel writers, who devotes a third of his book to this, just this journey to Jerusalem by Jesus and his disciples. And we see so many significant happenings that teach us about our own journey with Christ in this story. And it all starts in Luke 9 beginning in verse 51. So let's read together. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now the Greek word for taken up in this verse is analemsis, and it always refers directly to Christ's ascension anytime it's used in scripture. Okay, so Jesus, knowing that it was almost time for him to be taken up to heaven, now turns his gaze on, on Jerusalem. So this verse really sets the theme from this moment in chapter 9 all the way through to our main text today in chapter 19. Jesus has his sights set on Jerusalem and the ultimate establishment of the new covenant with his people, which we'll begin exploring next week. Okay, let's continue. Uh, chapter, 50, or chapter 9, verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Okay? There are two ways to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem in that day. And although going through Samaria was by far the more uh, direct route, generally devout Jews would avoid going that way because they didn't want to be defiled by the Samaritans. There was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, uh, there was deep hatred and constant hostility between them. The Samaritans were a racially mixed group. They weren't pure. They were partly of Jewish descent and part, partly Gentile ancestry. Uh, they were disdained by both Jews and non-Jews. In fact, they combined the Mosaic Covenant with their own pagan gods. They had their own version of the Pentateuch in Hebrew and Aramaic. 
And so tensions were always high between them and the Jews to the point that at times fighting broke out between them and occasionally it became so intense that Roman soldiers were called in to pacify and even at times to crucify many of the rebel fighters. So that just, you know, paints a portion of the picture here as Jesus and his followers begin to enter into sort of hostile territory as they're traveling through Samaria with his sights set on Jerusalem, the very place that the Samaritans hated. And you might wonder why Jesus chose to go this way. But John 4.4 actually says earlier in his travels that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That is, of course, where he had many ordained encounters, including the healing of the ten lepers and the famous encounter with the woman at the well on his earlier trip through that region. This was the Father's plan for him, and he knew it. And he allowed himself to be diverted. And so in complete obedience to the, the Father's will, he takes the hard road. You know, the one less traveled by the Jews. And because Jesus' mission was clearly leading him to Jerusalem where the fulfillment of all the, the prophecies about him for many hundreds of years was to take place, the Samaritans rejected him because they could not accept that Jerusalem was the place where God was to ultimately be worshipped. All right, And now as we continue in this narrative, we begin to see how the disciples' compassion, the disciples' concern, their, their love for others is working as they have their first encounter in Samaria on this trip. And what is probably one of the accounts in Scripture where I most personally identify with the disciples more than in most other stories about them. Okay, so let's keep reading verse 54. They've rejected Jesus now. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I get it, don't you? I mean, honestly, don't we sometimes encounter people in situations in life where you really, you're just trying to be helpful or compassionate or loving, and as long as they respond the way that we want them to, it's all good, right? We're ready to bless them and meet their needs and be their friend, whatever it takes. But if they don't respond the way that we want or expect them to, if they don't return our feelings of compassion and our friendliness or outright even reject us, most of us can flip that switch pretty quickly and we're ready to call fire down from heaven burn the place to the ground, and then move on to our next ministry opportunity. <laughs> That's what was happening here. All right? And don't be, some of you are looking at me funny. You make me feel bad. This is conditional love. Right? By definition, we love as long as we're being loved back or as long as some set of criteria is being met. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, I went on a kayaking trip with some of my brothers, two of my brothers and several other friends at Fontana Lake up in the Smoky Mountains. It's a beautiful place. And we had planned to paddle out to a particular island and camp for several days on our kayaks. And so we got there late as we get everywhere late when we're that age. And we got in the boats and we began paddling and paddling and paddling and we realized we had underestimated the amount of time it was going to take to get to where we wanted to go. And so as it, the day waned and it became night and darkness fell, we're now in the middle of the night in pitch black paddling these kayaks across the lake. And we came up to a, a marina, a boat dock, and there were two good old country fellas with their bass boat putting their boat in the water to go night fishing. 
And so we paddled up next to their trailer and said, hey, fellas, can you give us some directions? Here's where we're, and we're trying to sort of explain what we're doing, asking them if they can help us to tell us which way to go. And these guys began to berate us. You have no business being out here on the lake at night in those paddle boats. You're going to get yourself killed. And we're the kind of people that have to fish guys like you out when you come out here because you're irresponsible and they're just running us down. Not helpful at all. Make us feel about this big, you know. And my brothers and I, we've grown up around boats our whole life. We've been on boats, lake boats, our whole life. So we know the drill. And we're, we're getting yelled at by these guys as we watch them prepare their boat. And my brother notices that they haven't put the plug in the back of their bass boat. Now, to those of you unaware, if you don't put the plug, it's like the plug in your tub drain. If you don't put the plug in, the boat's going to sink. And my brother looks over at me and said, you see that? And I said, yeah, I, I do. I said, I guess we should tell him, huh? And he said, nah. <laughs> he was perfectly content to let them sink to the bottom of the lake and become fish food. I, on the other hand, being the more compassionate brother, decided that I should say something. So I waited until the boat was completely in the water. <laughs> to inform them of their potentially disastrous mistake. Now, had these fellas been kind to us, I have no doubt that my brother and I would have immediately warned them that the plug was not in their boat because uh, we really had no intention of doing the right thing at that moment because they hadn't earned our goodwill. You know what I mean? So well after they put the boat in the water and they drove it toward the dock, I decided to tell them about the plug and then we took great joy in watching the ensuing panic to get the boat back out of the water before it sunk to the bottom of the lake. <laughs> Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Watching those men nearly sink their boat brought us great satisfaction at the moment. <laughs> but we couldn't claim even one of these criterion on the list in 1 Corinthians 13. Had they been kinder to us, I believe we would have gladly saved them a lot of trouble. But our kindness came with certain conditions. In fact, our culture really breeds conditional love into us from an early age. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, right? So let's read the end of this little exchange now between the disciples and the Samaritans and Jesus, and we'll see where he stood on the matter. Verse 55, speaking of Jesus, says, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Just to be clear, Jesus wasn't rebuking the Samaritans here. He was rebuking his own disciples who apparently thought that Jesus would be okay with obliterating an entire village which actually makes me feel slightly better about myself. You know, when I get a bad attitude, not that it's any more right, but at least I'm in good company. James and John, they're pretty good guys, all right? Now then, let's head back over to Luke 19, and we'll pick up the story where we left off last week from the time that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. The journey has been all building up to this point. Chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, 
where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he'd told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Okay, now Jerusalem at this point in history was a heavily fortified city. That it sat atop adjacent hills in the mountainous regions of Judea and it was so well protected that even the Romans had a hard time recapturing it uh, during the Jewish revolt. They did, of course, recapture it, but only after a long and bitter siege. So here you have this heavily fortified grand city on a hill and to the east across the Kidron Valley stood the Mount of Olives. And here's Jesus on a colt riding from Bethpage and Bethany, which were two villages east of the Mount of, of Olives. And he's riding down the slope, right down the hill toward Jerusalem. Make no mistake, this was a grand entrance. And it was a bit out of character, in fact, for Jesus based on his mode of operation up to this point. It's not that he wasn't bold or confident in his message before. In fact, he always was, but he had never behaved previous to this moment in a manner that would have been expected by a king at that time. Jesus' ministry was personal. It was compassionate. It was sacrificial. And until now, he never behaved as, as kings were expected to in that culture. He never rode in on a horse before. He was never waving a sword. He never took a village or a city by force. He simply loved and taught and cared for everyone that he encountered. But this event, this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as we call it today, seemed to be a bit of a, a departure from the usual method of entering a city for him. And I personally believe that there was a definitive shift that was taking place in Jesus from the moment he set his face toward Jerusalem all the way up to this triumphant entry and the events that follow it over the next few days. We know at this point that he knew what was coming. But I also believe that he resolved to set some things right on his final march to his crucifixion because his behavior shifts markedly at times and, and subtly at other times. Just before they enter the city, we see Jesus refer to himself as Lord, verse 31, which he generally didn't do before this. When the owners of the cult asked why Jesus' disciples were untying it, he said, tell them the Lord has need of it, right? That was a bit out of character for him up to that point. And now we see him entering the city in a manner much more in keeping with someone of official capacity, someone who is to be rightfully honored. And then over the next week, we see him do things that you might expect a king to do. He cleanses the temple by force. He foretells the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. He, he forcefully refutes the, the wicked Jewish leaders. Jesus is asserting himself as the rightful king that he is, even knowing that he will soon submit himself to die. Although mockingly, but still signified as the king of the Jews. And this triumphant entry into Jerusalem is, of course, why we celebrate Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. But it's such a significant event that I wanted to begin to explore this today and next week over this two-week period of time to try and fully understand this incredible moment in our history before we move on to the resurrection. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. 
saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, so Jesus is riding now toward Jerusalem and everyone is throwing down their cloaks on the road ahead of him, which was a sign of greeting and honor to a ruler in that day. In Mark, we see them cutting down palm branches and throwing them on the, on the road as he makes his way toward the city. Uh, the palm branches were symbols of Jewish nationalism and victory. In fact, they were uh, connected with many prominent uh, Jewish victories and battles in the past. They were signified on Jewish coins at the time and in the synagogue and the, de- the decorations. These were clear displays by the people in recognition of Jesus' lordship and authority at that moment. Mark 11, 9, and 10 says that the people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, Hosanna means please save, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a prayer of blessing. It comes from uh, the Messianic kingdom from Psalm 118. Okay, the people all around him now are giving him a king's welcome. And as he rode toward the city on that colt, with all the fanfare and jubilation of the crowd, he looked much like a victorious king entering his city, and the people loved him for it. But as we'll soon see over the next two weeks, their love was conditional. You see, Jesus, they expected him to enter the city and take over, to perform a great coup once and for all and establish his kingship over all of Israel, centered not in Rome, but in the great city of Jerusalem. And their admiration and love was based solely on their expectations of what they thought that he would do for them. And as I've said before, that although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes apart from the supernatural workings of Christ in our lives. And so it is therefore perfectly appropriate for us to examine our own motivations when it comes to loving God and loving others because just as the crowd was all about Jesus here, they were literally singing his praises and yet would soon be chanting for his death once they realized he was not going to take over in the manner in which they expected It is important that we search out our own intentions and motivations with honesty and conviction when it comes to how and why we prefer others. Because preference based on performance is a shadow of true love. It's a hollow commitment that breeds disappointment and ultimately destroys relationships. Why do you think that so many marriages today fail? Of course, there's lots of reasons, but overwhelmingly it comes down to unmet expectations. It's preference based on performance. I sit with people day after day in counseling, marriages breaking apart because of unmet expectations. When you don't live up to my expectations, I'm out of here. God views marriage as a covenant, a relationship that's based on a commitment that we make before him and others. Society views marriage as a contractual agreement. You know, a legal contract based on compatibility and performance. It's love that is conditional, which actually is really no love at all. And this is not God's way. This is not what Jesus Christ modeled for us 
When we look at the example of Christ, we see someone whose love is unconditional. Okay, so let's finish our text for today, and we'll, we'll finish up this morning. Luke 19, starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Before he even enters Jerusalem, knowing that its residents would soon reject him and put him to death in the most horrendous fashion, he pauses to gaze upon that great city and he weeps for her, you see. His love for them was not based on how he would be treated, on how much they would respect him or how much equity there would be between him and the people. In fact, he knew at that moment that he was going to die for a whole world full of people who would neither deserve it or could ever hope to earn it. He knew that he would be hated, beaten, rejected and killed and he and he looked upon that city knowing that and he wept for her why because his love was without condition there were no expectations that the inhabitants of this earth would ever be good enough to deserve his love there was no performance that could ever be sufficient to earn his sacrifice his love for us and yet he does love us Intensely, So much so that his word tells us that nothing can separate us from his love. Not even death, in fact. See, there is no false religion. No selfish ambition. No material attainment. There's no dark power in this world that it could ever hold a candle to the infinitely more powerful saving love of Jesus Christ for his people. And it comes without conditions or expectation. And yet some still choose not to respond to it. We're commanded in scripture to love like Jesus loved. 1 John 3, 16 through 18, one of many places. That means we don't break our commitments or end our relationships when our expectations aren't met. When someone is unable or unwilling to perform up to the expectation for the relationship, what do we do? We love them the same. That means when your son or daughter comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. You don't disown your child. You're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. No. No, it means you love them the same. I'm not talking about condoning sin. Please understand, we don't condone sin. In fact, in some cases, Scripture instructs us to break fellowship with those who claim to know and love Christ, but refuse to acknowledge the truth in a given situation. But that doesn't mean we stop loving them. When our spouse doesn't measure up to our expectations, we don't walk away and start over with someone else. No, we remain in covenant relationship, and we press on toward Christ together, clothed in humility and committed to love. Again, I know there are situations addressed in Scripture where we're permitted or at times even required to break fellowship with someone or end a relationship. But even then, it's never a casual proceeding. A simple undertaking where we you know, state our own interests or our unmet expectations and then just walk away. Any 
breaking of fellowship in Scripture in a relationship is always preceded by loving correction after correction and then warning after warning and then opportunity after opportunity for reconciliation. Just look at God's dealings throughout the Old Testament with Israel. We see it over and over and over again, that pattern unfold. Because we were created for relationship with God and with each other. And up to now, we've been addressing largely the body of Christ, our commitment to God and to one another. But what about those who are not committed to Christ? What about those who don't get us? You know, they don't go to church. They don't uh, understand the Christian church subculture that most of us are accustomed to. How do we deal with all those folks? Well, it's the same answer. We love them unconditionally. We don't wait for them to look like us, right? Or act like us or talk like us. We just love them without expectation or requirement. And the truly beautiful fact is that we can achieve this kind of love made possible because of the love that Christ has for us, which he he ultimately, of course, expressed on the cross. But Jesus is the very embodiment of true love. And because his Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we can love like he loves us. In fact, we have proof of that in Scripture. That is exactly what was happening in the first century church. And we're going to study that in the Acts of the Apostles in a few weeks. The Christians in the early church literally and metaphorically sold out everything that they had for God and for each other. And the world sat up and took notice. And even though... The religious rulers and others bent on her destruction, tried to destroy the church. She thrived everywhere that Christians gathered. And the Lord added to their numbers daily. Why? Because they shook off every entrapment of man. They forsook every worldly expectation and selflessly pursued love every day with everyone that they encountered. And the Lord added to their numbers daily. That is love without condition, without expectation, not based on performance, but rooted in Christ's love for us and then expressed through us to others by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, okay? Listen, this is our highest calling and our deepest need to love and be loved unconditionally. Let's pray.